today provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on today. China's top judge and top procurator deliver work reports to NPC deputies. China's Environment Minister says the country expanded its switch from coal heating in 2018. Donald Trump proposes the largest budget in federal history. Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika drops bid for fifth term. U.S. warns Germany a Huawei deal could hurt intelligence sharing. You're listening to today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, we'll have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. The second session of the 13th National People's Congress, China's national legislature, began its third plenary meeting. NPC deputies have heard work reports of the Supreme People's Court and the Supreme People's Procuratorate, delivered by Chief Justice Zhou Qian and Procurator General Zhang Jun. Chinese judicial and procuratorial organs are keeping pressure on law violators with crimes ranging from graft to copyright infringement. The judiciary also is working towards expanding the country's opening up, the Belt and Road Initiative, and high-quality development. For more on the highlights of the two work reports, we are now joined on the line by Bai Shenyue, Managing Director, Managing Partner of Chen Yi Law Firm. Mr. Bass, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So could you first brief us a little bit on how China's judiciary system actually works? Uh, according to the Chinese constitution, uh, China quite different from uh, the Western democracies, which has a separation of power uh, system. Uh, China does not ha- have a, a, a judicial system uh, in the conventional sense as uh, probably familiar by the Westerners, China does have a court that is supposed to be independent. It is intended to exercise judicial power independently and free of interference from other administrative organs. But on the other hand, we do have also provisions in the Constitution which provides that uh, the leadership of the Communist Party is uh, something the court system has also to adhere. And in the meantime, we also have a procuratorate uh, that also, uh, it's a similar, it's independent from the court system, uh, similar to the court, it also has uh, three layers. It has the supreme, has the uh, uh, intermediary, and also the local level. The court system also has three layers. Uh, uh, parallel to those two uh, judicial organs, we also have the, the police department. Uh, which uh, is, is, is which operates as as an uh, part of the judicial system to to be in charge of the investigation, and the procuratorate is uh, responsible for prosecution. While the court is for the uh, make, uh, making rulings and uh, uh, is the uh, ultimate uh, sort of authority in uh, making any. Uh, criminal decision, any uh, uh, criminal uh, uh, sanctions, whatever. Well, well, this morning, Chief Justice Zhou Chan and Procurator General Zhang Jin, they both touch upon the progress being made in the past year. So what are the highlights for you as compared with the previous years? Uh, there are a few things that stand out. So for example, uh, the uh, crackdown on uh, gun crim- uh, crimes have uh, increased in the past one year. Uh, there are about uh, more than, I, I, as, I, as far as I can recall, more than 62,000 62, uh, serious violent crimes. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, the, the, the crackdown on intellectual property infringement have also uh, witnessed quite a significant increase. Uh, this uh, demonstrates uh, more efforts are being made by the judicial system to uh, prevent and to punish uh, IP uh, infringement. Uh, another uh, selling feature of this report is the uh, punishment of the uh, poverty relief fund corruption. Uh, in the past few years, we realized the crimes in this area have been pretty uh, serious, um, and also 
the uh, you see many more cases, quite a significant increase in the amount of cases uh, being investigated and being prosecuted in, in terms of environmental uh, protection. So these are, I guess, uh, some of the uh, major uh, uh, features that I, I noticed in particular. Yes, uh, but Mr. Bai, do you feel that um, compared with previous years, anti-corruption is no longer a major part in this year's reports, and why is that? I guess the uh, one of the reasons, there could be many, one of the reasons is, I guess, not simply because there are less cases involving corruption. I think it's simply because the emphasis uh, by the state, or by the judicial system, I think, is not on corruption anymore, because in the meantime, we do have many other challenges, many other really serious problems we have to address. So uh, the very fact that it's not uh, highlighting this report does not suggest there are less uh, crimes in this area. Mm -hmm. And naturally, uh, both of the two work reports mentioned the fight through three tough battles, the financial risks, poverty and pollution, as you earlier mentioned. What do you make of the importance of the legal environment in China's fight in these three battles so as to build the all-round warlock society? Well, well, these are really uh, critical issues China has to face and to address uh, through various means. Uh, part of this effort could involve uh, the uh, legal system uh, involving more efforts by the judiciary to uh, uh, you know, pay more attention to this type of uh, crimes uh, because uh, the financial crimes, uh, poverty-related crimes, and uh, environmental pollution are really uh, very challenging issues China has to address on a timely basis because over time these uh, would uh, have a huge impact on everyday life of the individuals of every single citizen on the street. Uh, the financial crimes have been uh, pretty uh, gruesome in the past few years. There are a huge number of um, financial crimes in involving financial fraud, which uh, give rise to victims uh, in, a month, in, in a number of uh, tens of thousands across the country. So that has had a, a huge impact uh, on, the, uh, on the public. And uh, many of the victims are still struggling, are still fighting for their uh, legitimate rights, etc. Poverty, of course, uh, in China has always been a problem, and it continues, unfortunately, to be a problem in the coming few years, given the size of China and the uh, number of population in China. So you do still have a large number of people who are still struggling uh, you know, along the poverty line. And environmental pollution is uh, is also another major challenge for China. Uh, I think it, is, it will continue to take another few years to really uh, solve this problem. And it takes a lot of effort to, uh, and a lot of uh, time and also a lot of uh, money to be invested in this, uh, in this area. Mm -hmm. And uh, you touch upon the IPR protection as one of the highlights in this year's work report. And the report says Chinese courts at all levels conducted 888,000 cases related to intellectual property rights of first instance in 2018, up 41.8 percent year on year. And also we know a, a tribunal for IPR-related cases was also set up at the SPC last year. So what do you make of these efforts to further in the judicial protection of IPR, and how significant is that? I, I guess this is a result of many uh, factors uh, combined, uh, which China has come to a realization over the years that uh, innovation is really the real engine of the economy that will, uh, that will be sustainable. Uh, China, uh, over the years, have uh, uh, the GDP has been growing very fast. Uh, uh, the, the country, the state has been, uh, has, has, you know, become much more affluent than uh, 20, 30 years ago. But uh, the thing is, we realize uh, uh, with, with a hard lesson, I guess, uh, as a result of, particularly as a result of the trade war with the U.S., that, uh, you know, innovation in terms of technology, in terms of innovation, China is still lagging behind. One of the reasons is because uh, we have not paid sufficient attention uh, to intellectual property protection. 
uh, we have been uh, we have been you know under the wrong impression uh, that uh, you know the growth of GDP itself will be able to benefit and to uh, uh, increase our you know capability in, in, in innovation. But it turns out that it does not come naturally. You know, there's a lot of efforts. Uh, one of them uh, to be made. There, are, one of them is a, a intellectual property uh, protection. We need to strengthen the legal protection of intellectual property, and also we need to uh, encourage uh, innovation. And without proper and sufficient legal protection, innovation will not come. It simply doesn't happen because the cost of uh, infringement is so cheap and so low, and uh, many of the infringement would go unpunished. So there's no way you can expect to see innovation to take place uh, naturally. Another reason, I guess, is because of the pressure from the U.S., from the EU, uh, there's been a uh, you know, widespread call from the Western countries that China needs to put more emphasis on the protection of intellectual property rights. And that's one of the uh, issues the U.S. has reached uh, many times. So uh, I guess uh, as a sort of a response to that, China uh, now, uh, after quite a few years, and also through our own hard lessons, we realize the high time we need to put more emphasis on this, and uh, this has become a top priority for us. Yes, both uh, internal and external factors. And actually, we um, noticed that there are quite a number of new courts being established recently. Besides the Intellectual Property Court, um, there's the International Commercial Court and the Internet Court. How do you explain the functions of, of these new courts? Uh, they are specialized, uh, specialized courts to address different sectors and different industries uh, and different cases that are, uh, you know, inherently sort of a different from each other. Uh, and also it's a measure, I guess, the judiciary taken to uh, kind of respond to the current situation, which has evolved because of the growth of the economy, because of the new technology. I guess uh, we are now in a different, quite a different era compared with 20, you know, 30 years ago. And the court system uh, has been uh, working very hard uh, you, from the report uh, both by the uh, SPC and SPP, the uh, Supreme Court and Supreme Proctory Court, you can see the cases have been increasingly like uh, like impossible. It's just too many cases. Uh, has been increasing. The sheer number of cases have been increasing all the time over the years. So uh, it becomes uh, virtually impossible for the, particularly the courts at a higher level, at the Supreme level, for example, for the judges. To basically know everything, you you, you know the technology, the uh, everything, the economy, etc., has become so complicated. You do need to have specialized judges to uh, review and uh, uh, you know different different cases. And for example, and also because of the one belt one road initiative, uh, China nowadays uh, is nowadays it finds itself in a quite different situation than many years ago. Because China has become a one of the major investors overseas, instead of the, you know, uh, a, a receiver of a foreign investment, we're now the state-owned companies going overseas. They are investing all over the places, so we start to have uh, commercial disputes that are happening in other countries, and we the, the judicial system remains the same. So we need to uh, kind of uh, making some adjustment to. Uh, uh, you know, to reply and to respond to this new situation, to make the court system more efficient, more specialized, and uh, more better equipped, kind of to deal with the new type of cases, and to make the the whole system uh, much more uh, efficient. I, I think that is the idea to set up this uh, specialized uh, course. And uh, some of the practice actually uh, borrowed. Uh, from 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 other countries, mm -hmm. we introduce them because uh, they have proved to be quite effective uh, in, in other countries. Yes, thank you, Mr. Bai Xianyuan, managing partner of Chen Yi Law Firm. You're listening to today. We'll be back in a minute. In-depth analysis, valuable insights, expert views, presented by an award-winning team. Today.
keeping you well-informed, up-to-date, and ahead of the news. You're listening to Today, I'm Zhao Ying. China expanded its coal to gas and coal to electricity projects to 35 cities in 2018 from 12 cities the previous year, Chinese Environment Minister Li Ganjie said on Monday. China's winter heating program used to burn an estimated 400 million tons of coal a year, and switching it to cleaner types of fuel was identified as a major part of the country's war on pollution now in its sixth year. However, speaking to journalists at a press conference, Li warned that despite the strides made in 2018, China's war on smog was getting hotter as there were still regional disparities in the way environmental protection was being forced. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Wu Changhua, China and Asia Director with the office of Jeremy Rifkin, a company aiming to advance third industrial revolution agenda to create new growth drivers for a new and clean economy. Ms. Wu, thanks for joining us. Um, what do you make of the significance of China's move to switch from coal heating to gas or electricity heating? I mean, how effective is that? Uh, it's absolutely the direct, right direction to go. I think it's kind in order to address the air pollution and also reduce the CO2 greenhouse gases emissions related to climate change. China has taken a, a major stride forward uh, to shift uh, the fuels. And uh, so shifting from coal to gas ele- electrification definitely is the, the right direction to go. But it, as you mentioned early on, uh, it's not an easy task, meaning... We, you know, it's not just to say we decided to switch, right? You need to prepare to get ready. You need to make sure you have the fuel to supply in place. You need to have the infrastructure to get, you know, in place in order to fully, you know, sort of implement the strategy and have the outcome. From the air pollution perspective, I think it definitely we started to see outcome uh, as reported by uh, the, 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 the minister and also Premier Li Keqiang's report to the National People's Congress. Uh, we we witnessed actually the major progress in terms of air quality, in terms of the number of days of smog. And uh, so now the official number is that 80% of the year, last year of the days actually, uh, could be regarded as blue sky days. But still we have 20%, the, the, the rest of 25, 20% uh, of the days actually we still experience different levels, sometimes very heavy smog there as well. But as I said, I think from a strategic perspective, China definitely has taken the right you know, strategy and took the right actions. Uh, but in reality, in order to make sure you know, such a strategy will be fully implemented in an effective manner and all the things need to be in place in order to do so. Yes, actually, as you said, lots of preparation works needs to be done to switch to cleaner energy. And as we know, the program to convert households to low emission heating ran into some difficulties in the in the past uh, several years because of the natural gas shortages. So has there been a more comprehensive plan in place now to make this transition smoother? I think compared to uh, the winter of the 2017, uh, so last year we started to see uh, progress, uh, meaning we learned the lesson from 2017. Of course, there was a sense of urgency addressing the air pollution, the smog issue. Uh, we, you know, the government decided to switch quickly, but then suddenly they realized, actually, that you know, the supply of the gas not totally in place and the infrastructure in many parts of the region is not in place. That's why, actually, uh, the lesson uh, we learned, right? And so, learning from that process, actually. And so the government definitely has taken more steps forward uh, to make sure the supply is put in place and also started really to get some major infrastructure together. Uh, So that's what we see the progress so far. And moving forward, I think, as we particularly put that action in the context of the challenge of achieving really blue sky agenda uh, next year, there's still a lot of access need to be taken. Uh, you know, we talked about the number of cities, right? And we know it's not adequate. So that needs to be expanded further, broader, actually, to many parts, particularly the northern part of the country. Uh, we'll, you know, that questions like, well, we'll still have enough supply uh, of the gas, and uh, we need to figure out. Uh, in the meantime, if we go for electrification, particularly in the northwestern part of the country, because, you know, we have a lot of installed uh, solar and wind energy, which is clean, but somehow they are not well connected to utilize at this moment. is a tremendous waste of resources. So going for electrification definitely is the right direction to go in those parts of the country. 
But then that requires major shifts of the heating infrastructure, right? And mm-hmm. burning coal and gas and using electricity, sort of use different infrastructure. So I think those are the efforts, those are the areas that I think the government needs to focus more on in order to really scale up, accelerate the actions in order to address the blue sky agenda. Mm-hmm. Well, we know last July, Chinese government outlined a three-year action plan targeting air pollution in three major regions, namely the Beijing-Tianjin-Hebei area, the Yangtze River Delta, and the North China Plain straddling Shanxi and Shanxi provinces. How is that plan being implemented? Uh, I think, as, as I mentioned, some of the numbers, like uh, statistics, the government numbers came in, uh, coming out. And uh, so definitely the numbers tell you the story, tell you the outcome, meaning, yes, there definitely has been major progress made already. You know, as a resident living in Beijing, we experience, we can literally see or feel, actually, the change of their quality. The number of days with blue sky is definitely much, much more. And uh, But as you know, we all also experience certain number of days that we do not like to have to breathe that sort of air at all. Mm-hmm. The early achievements actually are delivered probably, you know, when you when you started to address the challenge, there probably were more low-hanging fruits, uh, you know, uh, meaning, you know, there, there, there were more options actually, probably cost relatively lower, whatever, compared to where we are today. So move, you know, addressing the last, the 20% actually uh, of the agenda, the, I think that's going to require more, uh, investment and uh, the cost will be definitely higher, and that's going to require more complicated infrastructure change, everything like that. Uh, and we need to go deeper in order to really address to achieve the twenty, you know, the, the final twenty percent there. And uh, as reflected by the premier's report to the National People's Congress, now we're deep diving into versus diesel, you know, uh, trucks, uh, you know, transportation. We're looking into in the rural areas there as well. And uh, so from, you know, shifting from whatever the fruit we already captured, actually, in order to address the new issues, as I said, that's going to require more uh, investments, that's going to cost them more, that's going to require more technology innovations, that's going to require really more policy incentives together, even more enforcement, actually, of the laws regulations on the table in order to really capture that final 20% of their quality or blue sky agenda. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, China has done a lot of work in fighting pollution, but there's a report from the world's top climate group last year suggesting that to limit global warming to 1.5 degree would mean investing 2.5% of the world economy every year from now until 2035. So there have been uh, questions on the political will of world leaders to decarbonize. So how is China making a balance? between economic growth and cleaning up the air, especially as a developing country? Uh, I think China's efforts and the progress made so far uh, have been very well recognized by the global community, particularly in addressing uh, climate change issues. If you look at the you know, investment in installation of renewable energies, if you look at the efforts to capture energy efficiency, if you look at now we're moving into electrification of transportation there. So China is definitely on the right track in terms of the leadership. Um, the, the, situa- the, the challenge is that I think when you talk about the political will, in many parts of the world, there were people still feeling that this is a cost, this is a burden, right? This is a sort of a responsibility imposed on me. But the mindset in China is quite different because overall we are transforming our economy, our you know, infrastructure, our energy, everything actually in the context of sustainability, sustainable development goals and the UN you know, flagship and also the fourth industrial revolution. So China's mindset, has, even from the political perspective, is literally looking at this, this, this opportunity to create a grand new clean economy, right? So that makes the biggest difference. By saying that, actually, it's not like, you know, yeah, so easy, so smooth, right, whatever. There are hard decisions, difficult decisions every day for decision makers at different levels, right? And the choices, the trade-off, costs, you know, short-term impact, whatever, even jobs, right? And because facing out old industries or, you know, fossil fuels, whatever, short-term, that definitely impacts the job opportunities, which related to social stability there as well. So, but somehow, actually, compared to many parts of the world, China today, somehow it's very much determined, particularly under a very strong political will, meaning we're going to drive through the transformation. We're using this opportunity to drive technology innovation and also literally creating 
new, clean, and environment-friendly economy. So this, that's where China is today. Um, but I believe, actually, uh, you know, other countries will come around as well, and particularly large economies like U.S., EU, many new countries there as well. So together, the future, actually, midterm, longer term, the future, the prospect is very encouraging and promising, meaning, you know, all, if all the large economies are coming together, share the mindset China has today, we'll be able very quickly, you know, to shift our economy, shift our energy structure, and literally creating a clean, global, global clean uh, economy. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Wu Changhua, China and Asia Director with the Office of Jeremy Rifkin. You are listening to today. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Now Wang Xiao brings us with the global survey where we look at what's happening around the world. First up in Asia-Pacific. In South Korea, K-pop boy band star Song Rae says he is retiring from showbiz a day after being charged with supplying prostitutes to business investors. Singapore and Australia have joined China and other countries in temporarily grounding Boeing 737 MAX airplanes following a deadly Ethiopian Airlines crash that killed everyone aboard. Turning to Africa, Ethiopian Airlines says it has recovered both recorders from the downed Boeing 737 jet as part of the company's investigation into the deadly crash. The Democratic Republic of Congo's former vice president and rebel leader Jean-Pierre Bamba is seeking millions of dollars in compensation from the International Criminal Court for what they called a miscarriage of justice over his former conviction for war crimes. In the Middle East, the Egyptian military says three troops and dozens of people suspected of belonging to armed groups were killed in the Sinai Peninsula. In Turkey, new figures indicate that the country has fallen into its first economic recession in a decade. In Europe, UK MPs will vote on Prime Minister Theresa May's Brexit deal now that she has secured legally binding changes that satisfy the EU. And Eurozone finance ministers have delayed the release of over $1 billion in funding for Greece over concern that Athens is backing away from promised economic overhauls ahead of elections. In Latin America, Venezuela's government has ordered schools and businesses to remain closed after reporting that at least 17 people were killed in the blackout. In Brazil, intense floods in Latin America's business hub, Sao Paulo, have killed at least 11 people, turning roads into rivers. Finally, in North America, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she does not support impeaching President Trump, saying, quote-unquote, He's just not worth it. Staying in the country, advisors to former Vice President Joe Biden say his final, final decision to run for president is imminent and will announce by early April. That's the Global Headline Survey for today. U.S. President Donald Trump is asking Congress to approve his proposed budget for $4.7 trillion. U.S. dollars. It is the highest budget a U.S. president has ever put forward. Within his request to Congress for fiscal year 2020, Trump is not backing down from demanding the one project he values most. It is the same demand that sparks the 35-day partial government shutdown earlier this year to build 300 additional miles of a wall along the border with Mexico. That shutdown was the longest in U.S. history and left hundreds of thousands of federal employees and their families without paychecks. And this week, President Trump appears threatened to revive his fight for a wall as part of a budget request to Congress that would also add $1 trillion to the deficit. Now joining us in the studio is CRI contributor Patrick Flannery. Uh, Patrick, what are the main points of President Trump's proposed 2020 budget? Well, Joe Ng, at this stage, you could think of the budget as the president's wish list. That's kind of what it is right now. It's the very initial request to Congress. It outlines his top priorities and designating how, if approved, these dollars would be spent within the government. So with this first version of the budget, uh, this very preliminary budget, President Trump wants to accomplish two major things. First, devote more money to defense spending for the military and for border protection. Number two, cut spending for public programs that benefit the poor. Now, what does Donald Trump want most? More money for a wall on the border with Mexico and less money for health care and other federal aid. 
Uh, he's pretty outspoken about these two, uh, these two goals, and his budget proposal re- revives not one but two fights very important to Trump. That's building the wall and repealing Obamacare, or at least trying to. One thing you can always count on Zhao Ying in American politics under virtually every president is an increased defense budget every year. Is America at war right now? No. If anything, the president is working to pull troops out of the Middle East, yet he's asking for more money for defense. And under Trump's plan, that part of the budget would rise to about $750 billion, pay for 3,000 more Border Patrol agents. The budget also asks for about $2 billion to shelter migrant children who arrive at the border with or without their parents. So in its current form, the Trump budget will add about a trillion dollars to the deficit. Uh, there's, it's never been higher than that. And here's what President Trump wants to cut. $2 trillion from health care spending, including Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, he'd cut 30% from environmental protection, 16% from housing and urban development. That covers affordable housing for the poor. He'd cut 10% from the Department of Education. Those education cuts would also eliminate student loan forgiveness and make it a lot harder to pay back that debt. So another of Trump's requests includes $750 million toward family leave. Uh, not cutting it, adding this. Family leave, providing six weeks paid leave to new moms and dads. Another $300 million would be dedicated to ending the spread of HIV. Now that money would be set aside to expand community health centers and programs meant to help about a half million people fighting the virus that can often lead to AIDS. The e-cigarette industry would also be paying new fees as part of regulation under this new budget. And at the same time, the budget proposes cutting almost a billion dollars to the National Cancer Institute. Well, didn't the Congress already refuse to fund a wall at the border, which led to the longest American government shutdown in history? Indeed. A lot of history made just in the past uh, 60 days or so in the United States. And now Donald Trump is betting everything on it all over again. Here's one thing we know about Donald Trump. He's determined to get this wall built. He wants $8 billion to do it. Last month, he went so far as to declare a national emergency as a way of securing that funding. And right now, the Senate is hoping they've got the votes to reverse that declaration, although that's unlikely. And Trump may exercise his first veto of his administration. He's ready for that. Uh, Remember, when Trump was running for president, the mantra was he'd force Mexico to pay for this wall. That's not going to happen now. Uh, His budget ambition suggests he's in this to the bitter end and will use every resource domestically he can to secure public money for the wall. Senator Bernie Sanders, who's also running again for president as a Democrat, calls Trump's defense package a disgrace. He tweeted today that, quote, we spend more in the military than the next 10 countries combined. Trump wants to pay for it by cutting a trillion dollars from programs working families depend on. Senator Kamala Harris, she's also running for president. She calls the wall a vanity project that will hurt seniors. Senator Cory Booker, another candidate for president, he's calling the budget cuts to health care immoral. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says Trump's proposal is a roadmap to a sicker, weaker America. That's a sampling of where the Democrats stand That's what they're saying, and this criticism is expected, as is overall support from the Republicans, though we've yet to hear from Mitch McConnell and some of the other key Republicans on where they stand. Uh, Another view worth pointing out, Zhao Wing, comes from the president of the Federation of American Hospitals. He says Trump's proposed cuts to Medicare would be devastating for seniors. Well, how likely is that the Congress will approve the president's budget proposal? I mean, is there any chance the Democrats will find a way to work with the president on those priorities? We've seen this time and time again. It's very tough. He's been in office two years now, and we know historically first drafts of a president's budget rarely go unchallenged. No one's ever written it up, sent it to Congress, and boom, we've got it. We've got a budget. They're more symbolic than they are realistic goals. This is a wish list at this stage and a request to Congress for money and how to spend that money. So the last thing America needs is another government shutdown. Uh, It was horrific. Too many federal employees, hundreds of thousands, either furloughed, had to work without pay for more than a month. Congress wants to avoid another one of these and will need to find some middle ground on spending. They've got a lot of work to do ahead of October 1st. It's about six and a half months from now. That is the date uh, of the beginning of the fiscal year. Uh, hence this 2020 budget. So Trump wants to illustrate once again his dedication to earmarking taxpayer money for national security. He uh, will stake everything on this legacy. Um, He believes it's going to define him as president. Finally, there's the issue of balancing the budget he's put forward, which by even Trump's own personal projection is going to take 15 years to accomplish. It's a long time. 
Thank you, Patrick, for sharing your insights on this topic. Coming up, Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika drops bid for fifth term. You're listening to today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Einar Tangen. The Today Show brings expert local and international perspectives on China's economic and business issues. Having been in law, government, and finance in the United States, I find China's economic and political evolution fascinating, and hope you do also. Thank you for listening. You are listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika has postponed the April 18th presidential election and said he will not seek a fifth term in office. His candidacy had provoked mass protests across Algeria over the past few weeks. He has led Algeria for 20 years but has been rarely seen in public since they suffered a stroke in 2013. No new data for election was set. A cabinet reshuffle will happen soon, according to a statement in Mr. Bouteflika's name. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow of the Institute of West Asia and African Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Good evening, Dr. He. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good evening. Well, we know the president uh, pledged last week that he would step down early if he got re-elected. But what made him change his decision to withdraw from the election? Well, I think uh, this uh, decision has been uh, coming out, obviously, due to those uh, weak, uh, those mass demonstrations. Uh, because it's going, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the large scale uh, ever have uh, this kind of uh, mass demonstration and becoming, uh, you know, more and more and uh, in different cities in Argentina. So this situation becoming so serious and uh, make those decision makers, including the president himself, uh, to rethink uh, how to deal with the situation because uh, all those, uh, like other countries, ever since those Arab Spring, like uh, the neighbor country, like Egypt, like Libya, I think those are the cases uh, for those uh, elites people, uh, the ruling classes, to think. So uh, absolutely, they need to double think yeah, what, kind, uh, what kind of consequences will be. So I think uh, this is the reason, obviously. Well, you've mentioned about the uh, mass protests across the country over the past few weeks. Uh, what are the protesters, what are they demanding for? Uh, very clearly, they are demanding for change. Uh, they cannot, because there's all the demonstrations sparked from uh, that decision made by the ruling uh, you know, class, they are saying uh, President Bouteflika, even though he has been in power uh, for 20 years long and also, uh, you know, the very bad uh, health situation, but they are saying they will continue uh, to, uh, you know, join the election. So this news becoming the direct uh, causes, make people feel angry, they rush to the state uh, to protest. So they want to change. They cannot continue you know, uh, with this kind of uh, political system and this kind of uh, election system. So do you think Algeria is now having its, its Arab Spring moment, I mean, eight years after the movement forced out the leaders elsewhere in the region? Yeah, uh, it uh, depends on how we see this Arab Spring. Uh, if we see the Arab Spring is a kind of like a calling for change, yes, it is. Now it's happening in Argentina. But if we say in Arab Spring is a kind of a political, like a regime change uh, coming from those British shape, like a conflict and the fighting and even military one, but it's a, I don't think it will happen in, uh, by sure in Argentina because we have already seen uh, the ruling party and the president himself has shown this kind of a flexibility. Uh, flexibility. Uh, now they are lowering down the the tone, and then they also even uh, appreciate uh, the mass demonstration, the people on the street, they are very peaceful. So their calling for change is also rational. So this kind of a cooperative way, I think uh, maybe will make uh, all those, uh, those, you know, those fierce things now is uh, gradually coming down because they still have time from now on to the end of this year to do more of those reforms. And then, so in that sense, I don't think that Arab Spring is coming up now in Argentina.
Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, the Al- Algerians, they are asking for change. They are no longer satisfied with the status quo. But the thing is, to what extent do you think an election will change the status quo? If you think about the, the ruling elite, if we think about the country's judges and its electoral bodies. Yeah, according to the statement given by the President Bouteflika, uh, it is said until the end of the year, and then they will have uh, you know the con- uh, conference. This conference, the member of this conference will come from uh, those people from all walks of life. And then this big conference will charge, uh, in charge, guiding this new constitution making. And the new constitution also will be passed by a referendum. So which means this power will, uh, you know, as even as the president himself said, will now eventually in the hands of the new generation. I think he pointed to a key issue here. That is now the youth people, uh, lots of them, they were born, you know, in the 1990s. So actually, uh, they are also the people suffered from those uh, poor economic performance. So they are not satisfied at all for those uh, six years long, all the time. Those veterans, those revolutionary veterans, yeah, they are coming from those anti-France revolutionary, uh, milita- uh, you know, guerrilla war. But they have been for such a long time, always, you know, in charge, of all the political, economic, social things in Algeria. But this kind of old generation, now, they now uh, even thinking by themselves, they think it's the time to pass the power to the young generation. I think uh, uh, this going to be leads a big change in Algeria. And people were satisfied for that. And with this, and then they were coming up followed with other social and economic reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, how do we understand the d- delay of the presidential elections? Um, is it going to help ensure a peaceful transition of power? Oh, yes. This delay, uh, I think, has a lot of uh, content that we can, uh, we can read it. Because this delay is not just a one month or two month delay. It's going to be delayed until the end of this year. So which means uh, this uh, ruling party and all those, uh, you know, those inner circles, uh, with the president himself, now they need time uh, to, you know, to discuss and then to, to choose uh, somebody maybe can uh, replace uh, the, the the very aged uh, president and also not in good health. So this time around is also a time for the ruling party themselves. Of course, the military is very crucial, uh, this kind of uh, player in all those uh, inner circles. So uh, we, we can also recall, like in the past year, a lot of those, uh, you know, reshuffle, even within the military itself. So this time, they need to, uh, to you know, to reorganize themselves first, and then to try to find out who and who uh, will be, you know, uh, uh, running for this uh, coming uh, president election, and also continue. Of course, they want to continue. Uh, to not uh, completely, like, uh, uh, you know, lose the power. Mm-hmm. Well, I think maybe we need some background information here. What has been the situation, uh, political situation in the country until now? Uh, how has the president held power for so long? Oh, yes. Uh, because I traveled to Argentina, uh, that, that shortly after the Arab Spring in the year 2011. So by the time when, we, uh, when I visited Argentina, I talked to people, they are saying because our country, uh, you know, the, the reason for Argentina by that time, uh, they had not had any of those Arab Spring, those things. Uh, there are two reasons. One is because Argentina had suffered a 10 years nightmare uh, from 1991 to 1999. Uh, during that time, uh, because those uh, Islamist uh, those forces uh, has been, you know, uh, has been defeated by those military military power. And then there are 10 years of nightmare for anti-terror. So a lot of people, as many as 200,000 people died yeah, from that conflict, those uh, fighting. So this brings people to double think, uh, cherish those stability, and then they also uh, don't like to repeat uh, this nightmare again. So this is one reason. So they have not gone through that Arab Spring like their labor country has been suffering. Another reason is Argentina is a rich oil and gas exporting country. 
So by that time, uh, like President uh, Buttigieg and his, uh, you know, the those uh, elite people, they have the financial means to like to uh, give people uh, impre- uh, increase of uh, welfare. Uh, you know, the, the like uh, to help people uh, to improve uh, this, uh, uh, you know, the livelihood. So this makes people also feel happy uh, because the situation is still good. But now the situation is different. Uh, so anyhow, the reason for our junior political uh, issue can be maintained, like uh, relatively speaking, uh, stable uh, until today is because the ruling party itself is very strong. They are coming from all the time, like a military, uh, like a fighting guerrilla war with uh, France, the colonizer, and eventually uh, got this independence. So this is the historical heritage they have been building up. So mm-hmm. all the time until today, the ruling class and the party, and uh, they're all called those, uh, uh, you know, veterans for the uh, revolutionary time. Mm-hmm. So this is the... Uh, the historical heritage, uh, you know, heritage have been uh, enjoying until today. Yes, thank you, Dr. Ho Wenping, Senior Research Fellow of the Institute of West Asia and African Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. The United States says it will stop sharing intelligence with Germany if the country's wireless network uses Chinese telecom company Huawei to upgrade to 5G. The Wall Street Journal reports that the U.S. ambassador to Germany, Richard Grenell, issued his warning in a letter to Germany's economy minister, Peter Altmaier. Altmaier has said before that Germany does not want to ban Huawei, adding that Berlin may change the law to ensure security in all components used in the 5G network. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Einar Tungen, author and columnist. So, Einar, um, ambassador issuing a warning. To what extent is it an escalation when it comes to the U.S. push against the global presence of Huawei? Well, it's it's been an open secret for uh, quite some time that uh, the U.S. has been pressuring allies, all five eyes, uh, the, the group that is in the intelligence, active intelligence um, monitoring situation where they exchange um, uh, high-level uh, classified information often cases when they can't uh, get the information themselves, especially on their own people, what they'll do is they'll have another country gather the information and then uh, sort through it for any kind of red flags that can uh, be forwarded. So in terms of escalation, um, it's been part of the campaign now for a few weeks. Um, You'll note that Australia uh, came out uh, suddenly and said, oh, yes, we're we're going to ban Huawei. That was in uh, response to U.S. pressure. Uh, the fact that it's open is, is pretty much a uh, an escalation. Well, do you think this move uh, link business contract with intelligence cooperation? Do you think um, it is the uh, personal opinion of the ambassador, or do you think we are going to see the White House take this approach more often from now on? <laughs> well, with Donald Trump, everything is personal. But I mean, Richard Gr- uh, Grinnell is uh, interesting. He's he's only been he's been there for less than a year. Uh, he uh, was sworn in last June, but you know he's he's managed to uh, create a lot of controversy. And in May, he uh, he got into a spat with the telling German companies that they uh, should not uh, get get involved in Iran. In June, he was another controversy where he says. Uh, he, he was uh, trying to encourage right-wing parties in <laughs> in Europe to uh, kind of uh, go into that a direct or indirect attack on the uh, current government in Germany, um, and it, it just goes on from there. Uh, it, it's he's really had a very very uh, controversial time. He's been uh, you know looked at in. Uh, uh, a German magazine which described him in very, very unflattering terms. It talked to 30 different sources, both American and and German, and said he's just uh, not an appropriate uh, uh, ambassador in any way, shape, or form. So in terms of being personal, yes, he does represent uh, Donald Trump, and Donald Trump does engage in these tactics, uh, the overt use of threats. Um, He's sailed ships through the Taiwan Straits. 
uh, within 12 miles of disputed islands, flown bombers across them. This is kind of par for the course, mixing trade and security. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that Edward Snowden revealed the U.S. National Security Agency was caught tapping into the phone of German Chancellor Angela Merkel. So I guess one would wonder how the German side would see the U.S. accusation against Huawei about backdoors. How do you expect Germany would respond officially? Well, uh, Germany has responded. They have uh, indicated that they'll be tightening up uh, the uh, process by which they select all vendors. And what they're saying is that uh, they will have some independent testing, uh, but they're not going to outright ban Huawei. Um, It's interesting because uh, through this process uh, in attacking Huawei, the the U.S. government revealed that they've been engaged in industrial spying themselves for the last eight or nine years against Huawei and ZTE. They disclosed that they were routinely inspecting and copying uh, phones, uh, laptops, uh, anything they could get their hands on uh, when people were going through into the United States. Uh, now, the irony here is this is what they're complaining that Huawei is going to do is they say, well, you know, we're afraid that you'll engage in some sort of uh, hacking or industrial spying. So it's kind of the, uh, it's kind of difficult to uh, look at this with a straight face. Uh, I think everybody, um, including the Germans, uh, all countries have their own spy networks and things like that. Uh, the U.S. has been vociferous and in insisting that everybody else is spying on everybody else. But the fact is that the U.S. is probably the most uh, advanced uh, spy nation on Earth at this point. Well, again, from this case, what can we tell about the way the Trump administration treat its traditional allies, and how do the European countries handle such pressure from the U.S.? Uh, we have one minute left. Okay. Well, it's quite clear that uh, what's happening here is is there's a greater rift uh, growing between Europe and America, and it's a, uh, it's been evident in many, many ways. Um, it's just everything from the global warming to the uh, trade tariffs on aluminum and uh, and steal uh, the threats against the U.S., especially Germany, in terms of uh, car tariffs and things like this. So uh, right now, at this point, uh, Donald Trump does does not acknowledge that he has any real friends, and unfortunately, that includes allies. Thank you, Einar Changen, author and columnist. That's all the time we have for this edition of today. A quick recap of today's headline news. China's top judge and top procurator deliver work reports to NBC deputies. China's environment minister says the country expanded its switch from polluting coal heating in 2018. Donald Trump proposes the largest budget in federal history. Algerian President Abdelaziz Bouteflika drops bid for fifth term. U.S. warns Germany a Huawei deal could hurt intelligence sharing. To listen to this episode again or catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. The program engineer of this episode is Ya Qing. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening.